I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Well, thank you very much indeed. And thank you to the London Review Bookshop for hosting this event. I have no qualifications really for, uh, for doing this at all other than the fact that I've known Jeff for um, o- over 30 years and I've read all of his books. <laughs> and uh, in fact, we were sharing a house together in Brixton when he was beginning work on his very first book, which was a study of John Berger, uh, a right. good long yeah. time ago. Um, I would like to say that he is the subject, which is quite an honor for uh, a living author of uh, his still not that advanced years of a conference this Friday that's happening at Birkbeck College devoted to his work, which I think is uh, quite some recognition. Anyway, um, we're lucky that Jeff is here this evening, partly because he no longer lives in this country. He fled its shores about six months ago to go to live in Venice Beach in Los Angeles, California. And um, I think the theme of his his love for for the states and for American culture is one that comes very strongly through this this particular book. I think I'd like to start by uh, really just to kick us off, Jeff. Why? What's the significance of the title "Another Great Day at Sea"? Oh yeah, well, and uh, thank you for for doing this, uh, Chris. I mean, just to give a bit of background, one of the very first things I ever did. It was at the ICA and Chris was my interlocutor back in 1991 when But Beautiful came out, uh, which is my book about jazz. And, um, you know, the truth is that my interest in jazz, I mean, all of that great music that I was writing about in in But Beautiful, I heard about 90% of it from Chris's uh, incredible collection of, of jazz vinyl. So we had many, many evenings geeking out to, to, to all of this sort of stuff. Anyway, another great day at sea. Every day on the boat, as I keep calling it, partly just to irritate people who are aware... Presumably you all know the distinction between a boat and a ship. A ship can have a boat on board, but a boat can't have a ship on board. And I refer to it almost throughout as the, as, a, as the boat without ever explaining the distinction. So that's one of many things that, that irritates people about this book. Anyway, uh, each day on the ship, uh, the captain would address the, the ship's company, 5,000 people. And it was, it was not exactly the highlight of the day, but in many ways it was the, the, one of the moments around which uh, life revolved. And so whatever people were doing, they would, they would stand and listen. And he would always start by saying, it's been another great day at sea. And this became a kind of 
uh, you know, it was listened to with a certain amount of wry amusement. But the incredible thing is that people listened to it every day to see how the captain, against all odds, was able, as he always was able to do, to make this particular day seem particularly great. In fact, greater than the one that had gone before. But also, somehow, laying open the possibility that tomorrow would be even greater. And it was... So we were just dwelling in this in this realm of the constantly improvable upon superlative. Um, now, I was only on the, the ship for two weeks, but uh, this did come to a sort of climax when he said one day, I mean, uh, uh, so we were in the middle of the Arabian Gulf, and the, the weather, of course, was always great. But he said, it's, it's, been a, it's been another great day at sea. It's been a striking day. You know, I think we should all just send our paychecks for, back to the Navy for the privilege of being here today. And... That, I mean, obviously, you know, we think back to some of the, you know, the, the sort of seafaring, the cultural, cultural seafaring stuff that has formed our, our idea of the sea. This is a, what to say, this is a far cry from life on the bounty, isn't it? You know, um, it really was, uh, you know, it was, to put it in a really banal way, it was an incredibly happy ship, I think. Okay. <clears throat> I should say that um, if any of you have been uh, reading the papers uh, in the last three or four weeks since the book came out, you will have seen that this book has been little less than rapturously received. It's had, um, uh, even by your pretty warm standards, it's had a fantastic reception. Um, we hear from the Evening Standard that Jeff Dyer is the Rupert Everett of Belle Lettre, tall, handsome, and thrillingly cavalier about saying and doing exactly as he pleases. We're, we're also told by the Sunday Herald in Scotland that Dyer himself can move from a viscerally detailed gripe about digestion and defecation to a cosmically awestruck rendering of the ship's passage through the universe, as seen through a borrowed pair of high-grade night-vision goggles. Wow, that seemed, that's, I hadn't seen you that You haven't one. seen that no, one. That's one of the things that in my all-too-frequent bouts of self-googling I somehow miss. Well, it's the... <laughs> For such a worldly writer, Dyer often seems to verge on transcendence. There are, however, some dissenting voices, and I feel I would not be doing my uh, duty uh, fully if I uh, were to ignore them. So I'm going to share this with you. Uh, this is the very worst book I have ever read <laughs> about life aboard a naval vessel of any nationality. It is juvenile, patronizing, and everything is about the me, me, me of the author and nothing about the subject he's there to write about. The author can never remember the names of people interviewed but goes into great detail about his own attention disorder problems. <laughs> Every chapter comes across as a teenage diary that is definitely grade F. I'm embarrassed to think what any of the crew aboard thought if they bothered to read his book. It makes you embarrassed to be British. <laughs> That was Mr. R. I'm assuming it's a Mr. Um, R. Polkinghorne, and you will find that on the uh, the, the Amazon uh, reaction to you know the readers, uh, whatever they call them, responses to Jeff's book. Most of the others, I should say, I think just about all of the others are, take a very very different and more approbatory position. Yeah, well, do you know? I mean, it's I know we're not you care to respond to that, Jeff. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's. Um, but I, I thought you were going to read some of the negative ones as well. I mean, but I mean, it's it's really awful. This I, I, it's something that I I know I'm prone to, and I bet you are too. But you know that kind of incredible, awful twilight world of the Guardian comments thread. You know, you read the Guardian, and there it all is, and it's all nice. And then below the surface, there's this world which you should never look into. But you know, one does, and it's it's a bit like that with some of the. 
reviews on Amazon. So here's a here's another one that I thought was just extraordinary. Um, the author Jeff Dyer, a soft man, wouldn't last a day in the enlisted navy. <laughs> The Navy as a culture is this. You steam out of your home port for what is typically a six-month deployment. Each port of call is the same in this order. Start drinking, get a prostitute, then good and drunk, get a prostitute again. In that mix is also interspersed brawling with locals and your fellow sailors. No doubt in my mind that sailors are even more violent than the Marines. In these overseas cities, you're not going to hook up with a regular girl. There is no time. Liberty call for E3 and below, that's a rank, is six hours. So after repeating the above-mentioned behavior at ports of call over and over, some of the sailors look at all women as prostitutes, including fellow service women. Typically, it's the 18 to 32-year-old set that is the problem, and they are the lowest ranked. This set is also responsible for the most virulent anti-gay hatred and many officers encourage slipping in which a known gay sailor is taken aft and he slips over the railings and churned up by the weight. Then he disclosed, you know, normally you would think this is the kind of stuff you get from a sort of anonymous psychotic, but no, he signs it. Christopher Lawrence Roberts, USS Portland, LSD 37, amphibious ship, Homeport Little Creek, Virginia, boiler technician E1 to E3 and back down to E1. Spanning the entire documentary history of, history of the Navy, I set the record for 105 straight days of restricted duty aboard ship. Investigated by the NIS for burglaries and robberies. Served on board 1982 to 1985. My naval service is all a matter of public record. Ultra-violent were my ways. Do or die. <laughs> Ride forever days. I mean, so yeah, I mean, by that kind of, uh, I mean, two things. One, I don't mind being soft. Being called a soft man in the context of that kind of thing. But also, I mean, it does make me slightly conscious that I that I saw and maybe painted a somewhat kind of rosy tint, tinted picture of life on the ship because you know it just seemed this absolute model of kind of behavior in in many ways a model of racial integration um and I think it's is it a fifth of the crew are women now you know that was something that was resisted for a very long time and it was a bit like when after after a wait of kind of 400 years, women were admitted to my old Oxford college, you know, and people thought, huh, what took us so long? Why didn't we do this 300 years ago? <laughs> anyway, so it seemed like such a sort of harmonious place. And then when I got back, it was a couple of people in America said, oh, you know, down in the engine rooms, there are gangs there, and certain people from one part of the boat don't go to another part of the boat, because if they, you know, if, if, if they do, there can be all sorts of trouble. So that letter, although it's, I mean, it seems kind of crazy. It makes me aware mm. of, um, you know, that there, well, I, I was conscious that I wasn't getting such an in-depth look into, into what was really going on to use an inappropriate expression below stairs. Mm, mm. And the book is necessarily, even though it's a full length book, it's a highly, highly selective book as it, as it, as it must be. I and mean, it's a record of two weeks on the, on the ship. Maybe we should say something about the actual experience itself and how you came to write it. I mean, first of all, why did you want to go on an aircraft carrier as opposed to any other sort of ship or boat? Oh, yeah. Well, and why did it have to be an American one? Um, oh, great! I, I'll take the uh, the second question first because um, we didn't we don't have an aircraft carrier. We do. Well, it was just <laughs> unveiled the other day, wasn't it? But it's not quite ready to mm, put to, see, to see yet. Yeah, well, I I couldn't have borne to have 
been on a, a British aircraft carrier because the, the British military is always that sort of tough to prol hierarchy is just so naked, isn't it? Mm. Whereas, and of course, the the American Navy, the American military is, of course, any military is, incre- is, is every bit as hierarchical as the British one, but the kind of class aspect of it is less is less uh, nakedly expressed, I think. So it was really sort of socially incredibly interesting to me, the mix of people that we got on the aircraft carrier. So, for example, you know, this guy, there was Captain Brian Luther. He was the captain. And then for a brief period, he was outranked on the, on the, on the ship by, by the vice admiral who came on board. You know, and she, she was uh, Nora, Vice Admiral Nora Tyson from Kentucky, who had this lovely kind of, you know, charming southern manner. And, you know, it was just extraordinary. I, I just couldn't conceive of somebody like her really in a similar job in the British military. I mean, for one thing, extraordinarily, she was an English major, an English graduate, as we would say here. So she would talk to me and she'd sort of, you know, she'd want to talk about, I wish I could do her accent, she'd want to talk about that that James Joyce. And, you know, and then she'd say, oh, you know, I, I know there's a sort of politi- polit- politician's charm in this, but she'd say, Jeff, I would love to, I would love to spend more time talking to you, but I know you've got a really busy day ahead of you. You know, meanwhile, she's running the, the fifth fleet. And it was just, um, it was a slight surprise to meet someone like that. But I knew I was going to like that aspect of it. I'm now working my way back to the, the more general question, why an <coughs> aircraft carrier? I mean, when this opportunity came up to go to, the idea is that Alain de Botton had set up this thing called Writers in Residence, which sprung out of his book that he wrote when he was a writer in residence at Heathrow for a week. So he said, was there any institution in the world that I would like to spend time in and then write a a short book about uh, the experience? And right from the start, it seemed really silly to go anywhere that I might at some point have access to in my normal life. I mean, even somewhere that I might have access to as a sort of, you know, as sort of journalist on a free trip. So it right from the start, I thought, well, it, it probably has to be something military. And I'd been really interested in the military for a long time, both as, um, you know, like many people in this room, and a long-standing interest in the First World War, the Second World War, and particularly, I guess, with, you know, I mean, those, those films, uh, both, you know, the sort of classic submarine versus destroyer film from the, from the Second World War. I mean, that... That stuff was so in my blood that, you know, I, I liked the idea of being on a, on an aircraft carrier because that seems to me that sort of, you know, you've got, it's twice as good. You've got planes and you've got boats, you know. It's, uh, it's also, it's also, it's an element of the, uh, of the services which hasn't been written about more recently in the way that all of the, or so much of the writing that's come out of the States in oh. particular has focused on, mostly on, on the, uh, on the army. Uh, that's so true. Um, yeah. I'm thinking of those books that you have written about yourself by people like, um, David Finkel and, um, Daryl. What's uh, the name Dexter of the other Filkins. Dexter Filkins, yeah, that's yeah. right. Oh, yeah, and I know you're a particular yeah. um, fan of a lot of that non-fiction that's come out of the experience of the Iraq and the Afghan wars. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure I am. And you're, yeah, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're right that there was this uh, sort of 
well, there was no way I was going to uh, say to Alan, yeah, I want to get in a Humvee in, in <laughs> Afghanistan, you know, for uh, um, and, and drive around and wait till I get blown up by an IED. You know, that wasn't so uh, so appealing. But I think with this as well, I mean, that the planes have a have an especial uh, appeal. So to be in a in a place where, you know, you've got this incredibly advanced technology. It was just a chance in a, in a, in a lifetime, really. And it, it turned out, and I, actually I knew it was going to be a, a great experience, really. And it, it really was. Um, and the other thing I should say about it, it was also an experience that I knew would not only be great, but that it was, it was a great experience that would yield plenty of stuff to write about. Because I like a free trip as much as the next person. And I certainly know how terrible it is when you think, great, I'm getting a hugely expensive free trip. Oh, now I've got to write however many thousand words about my luck, the luxury resort I was on in the Maldives or something. Um, so this, I knew, was going to yield a, a huge amount to, to write about. And in fact, the problem for me, being on it for such a short time in many ways, was that you know I, we'd go to different parts of the ship and some incredible experience was constantly getting overlaid by another great experience. So it was really, it was such a sort of overload of uh, information and sensation and experience. And yet, um, I don't think, judging by what you write in the book, that this was uh, a, a book that you found particularly easy to compose. And there's a very um, touching moment of self-revelation and vulnerability in the book where you talk about your loss of self-confidence after you'd been reading Tom Wolfe and uh, that how on earth were you going to tackle this subject? How on earth could you find it within yourself to write this book? I mean, it wasn't, um, I mean, it's a tremendous read. It it, it rocks this book. It really is very entertaining. You read it extremely quickly. But I have the impression that the writing of it was probably a great deal more difficult than it seems. Uh, yeah, that's true, and that's that's one of my favourite passages in the book. That bit that you've mentioned, but it was difficult in another way as well, actually, um, because in the in the past, all the stuff that I've written has been an attempt to discover something. So the jazz book, you know, what was it about jazz that I loved so much, or what was it about the First World War that haunted me, or what is, you know, it's it's the writing of the books is always a thing of discovery. Now in this case, I had the the experience, I had the free trip, and uh, then I had to write it up. And the thing is, I knew what I thought of the experience; it was amazing, pretty much as I was having it. So for the first time ever in writing a book, I really just had to transcribe stuff, and I don't just mean transcribing which i sort of didn't do the actual kind of tape recorded interviews that that i'd done and i i'd never really before i hadn't used a dictaphone for 20 years or something and god i mean the technology has really come up anyway that's you know it's um but yeah so there was a lot of just transcribing what i'd already known was happening and then it was only once the labor of transcription was over that i could really start having a bit of a a, a bit of fun with it you know uh because there was an awful lot of just information to convey and also i was i became conscious that a load of the stuff that i tried to you know a lot of the time people were just showing explaining to us technically how things worked like the catapults that launched the, the planes off the ship you know and they would really do it in the most simple terms and you know they'd explain it and i'd say could you just say that once again and i just couldn't couldn't understand all this mm. stuff. And it really did increase my admiration for, say, a writer who, um, you know, he's, he's written those kind of 
popular uh, sort of fiction books, but he's also written those great non-fiction books. Len Dayton, you know, somebody who is able to uh, explain in great detail all the, all the te- technical specifications of, um, say, a Spitfire or a Messerschmitt or whatever, um, and explain why that affects the turning circle. You know, and all, all, you know, he really is able to uh, bring all that technical expert to harness that technical expertise to incredible narrative skill. Mm. Whereas I just couldn't get the technological stuff in in my head. But you don't feel it's missed as a reader. It's not something you know. The book establishes its own identity very quickly, and it's not something that I felt was lacking. I mean, there were other things that I would I, I didn't exactly feel were lacking, but that I I, I was aware of their absence. Well, well, very nicely put, Chris. So, uh, well, what, if there were things lacking, what might they have been? <laughs> it's it's extreme. I want to ask you to read in a, in a moment because I think all this talk about the book for those who haven't read it um, would be um, assisted somewhat by by you reading a passage. But um, I, w- I was the, the, there's a kind of um, how, how can I put it. In terms of the people on, that you speak to, an awful lot of them are involved in one way or another in kind of support capacity of looking after other people. You know, they're involved in health or they're involved in, in, in law or they're involved in um, counseling. Uh, there's, there's quite a strong emphasis on the, the sort of support and caring mm-hmm. functions within um, the ship. Um, for example, you don't go down to the engine room. There's, there's no, yeah, um, right, that there's yeah. no encounter with any, any of the marine engineers, for example. That's, that's true. You know, you mentioned, I forgot all about them. All those <laughs> sweaty guys in their singlets as, as that's featured it. in Das Boot. You exactly. Know. Yeah. Exactly. That is true. I mean, there are plenty of places in the, in the ship I didn't go to. So the engine room, I mean, the heart, you know, the reactor room. Maybe it was off limits. It very likely Yeah, the was. reactor room mm. was, would certainly have been mm. uh, off limits. Mm. But yeah, mm. you're, you're right about, uh, about that. But uh, you see, I thought what you, I thought I was going to mm. disagree with you mm. because in a sense, everybody, um, some incredible, I'm trying to do the math. There are, let's say there are 66 planes on the ship. So let's say there are about 80 pilots, mm. you know, and actually the whole thing is existing solely for the sake of those mm. planes mm. and the, and the, mm. um, and the pilots. Mm. So in a sense, everybody on the ship, including mm. the captain is, is there just in the service yeah. of, of the pilots. Mm. And yeah, you're re- everyone is very, very conscious of the, the way that the pilots are the focus of, of the pilots and the planes are the focus of, of everything. And this phrase that keeps coming up about, you know, every little, every squadron or, Every unit, whatever it is, they all claim they all want to be at the tip of the spear. But the mm. truth is, it's the pilots mm. who are at the tip of the spear. And you know, just to say a word about about the, what one of the pilots I, I spoke to. Well, t- I mentioned two of them. There was this one called Disney, and I really that was his call sign. They all have these cool call signs, which nearly always have some sort of obscene background to them. So he asked me to not say how he got the call sign Sydney uh, D- Disney. Anyway. And, you know, um, I, I'd meet these pilots and they're all, with one exception who I'll tell you about, they all joined the Navy because of Top Gun. So they all have that Top Gun swagger. And he said, you know, and I met him, I was talking to somebody else about two-seater planes. Most of them are one-seaters. He said, two-seater plane, that's just a, that's a plane with a pilot and a piece of self-loading baggage sitting in the back. So I thought, oh, you know, I'd quite like to talk to you some more, uh, Disney. And anyway, we did speak some more. Then another pilot I spoke to, her name was Jax, and she was, it's kind of incredible, you know, this woman, 
flying solo F-18 combat missions, you know, so they were, I was very conscious that, you know, the, the glamour of the, of the, of the planes and the pilots is very, very attractive. And I was aware of just wanting to spend as much time as possible on the flight deck mm. and hanging out with them. Mm. Um, okay. I'm now going to yeah, invite uh, you to read something. Do you have a yeah, piece in me, mind? Let me read this bit about Disney actually, because, uh, yeah, really this book has been so, so beautifully designed that you can't actually find the page numbers. Yeah, we're going to come on to the design. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'll pick it up from where he, I asked him about that remark he made. When we met up again, Disney's shaven-headed confidence had turned to tact and di- diplomacy to the extent that he asked me not to print the explanation for his call sign. And the earlier crack about two-seater planes, that was just good-natured ribbing too. But the thing about solo flying, he said, is that your mistakes are your own. You're as good as you're going to be on that day. It's just you on your own in the office with the best view on the planet. So do you actually get time to look around, I said. When we're taking off from the Indian Ocean into Afghanistan, it was an hour and ten minutes driving up the boulevard, as we called it. There was plenty of time to look around then. I'd heard that during eventless flying time like that, Pilots sometimes plugged in their iPods and rocked out in the stratosphere. Disney was unable to confirm or deny such stories. But he did speak of the routine of flying in terms that I would hear several times more in the course of my stay. You're just flying a video game. You're a weapons and sensors operator more than you're a pilot. The plane is easy to fly. It flies itself almost. And then, with no change at all in his low, slow drawl, he began to talk about a different order of experience. You're flying at night, on a gorgeous clear night. At 30,000 feet with the night vision goggles on, it's like flying through space. You see... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Stars that you never thought you'd see before especially if you're over water. That's like flying in deep space. So there it was, still intact, despite the technological advances and laconic delivery, the lyricism of night flight, as first and famously evoked by Saint-Exupéry. It was as if he had revealed something intimate to me, the experience that was at the core of his being, a realm of poetry accessible only to those whose worldview is based on technology knowledge and calculation, rather than wide-eyed wonder. Something similar had happened a couple of nights earlier, when I'd been sitting with the captain and his friends as they smoked their cigars. Amid the talk of service and the fun of flying, 
The captain had suddenly spoken of how, with no light pollution, on a night when there's no haze, you can see the majesty of the Milky Way. And Disney, the kid who'd excelled at video games, for whom it all came down to hand and eye coordination, on keeping an eye on the dials and switches in the data, he was having the transcendent experience craved by mystics, shamans, seekers, and acid heads. His evocation of the stars reminded me of a moment in Maurice Herzog's mountaineering classic, Annapurna. Herzog and his companion have conquered the summit, but the triumph brings them and two other members of the expedition who had come to their rescue to the edge of death as they struggle, snow-blind, shattered, frostbitten, down the mountain. The sky was blue, writes Herzog, the deep blue of extreme altitude, so dark that one can almost see the stars. A few moments later, they are engulfed in an avalanche. This privileged glimpse of stars is, as Saint-Exupéry repeatedly and rather grandiloquently insists, underwritten by the inherent danger of the enterprise, the daily possibility of dying, the final smash-up, as he called it, in wind, sand and stars. Have you ever had to eject? I asked Disney, wondering, too late, if such a question broke a taboo and tempted fate. I have not. Ever got close? I guess it depends on your definition of close. But I, uh, I managed to salvage, salvage the situation well before I reached an envelope where I had to think about getting out. Envelope. Love it. We've been talking a few minutes earlier about the beauty of flying at night, as though through deep space, and now we were back within the linguistic envelope of the pilot's routinely laconic argo. And the downside of flying at night... Disney reminded me, was that you often had to land at night too. Nights like these where there's a moon out so you can see what's going on, that's less stressful. But a dark night with terrible weather, low cloud, the boat pitching and you can't see it to the last seconds, that's a terrifying experience. You have instruments telling you what's going on but it's just a postage stamp of a boat down there. Even with all the technology, we're still very visual and what you can't see terrifies you. You'll land and have trouble getting out of the aircraft because your legs are shaking so much. And you're like, what in the hell am I doing this for? That was just stupid. How about taking off at night? Is that more straightforward? Jeez, he said, in some ways I hate, I hate a night catapult shot more than I hate a night landing. You sit there, they dim the lights down, but your eyes take time to adjust. They shoot you off the front end, and on a dark night, you've got no visual reference, no idea where the horizon is. It's like getting shot into a black hole. You only have your instruments to trust. On the way down, even on a dark night, you can often see the lights of the ship out in front of you. But when you get shot off catapult one, the edge lights go and you're in the dark. So you climb, you get your night vision on, try to figure out what's going on. The odd thing about this was that Disney seemed completely unfazed by what he was saying. Routine, lyricism, terror, all of it was recounted in the same slow, unexcited drawl. Everything about taking off and landing from a carrier had gotten safer, but Disney said something I would hear elsewhere on the carrier. A lot of our lessons are written in blood, he said. It's not necessarily a dangerous business, it's just terribly unforgiving of mistakes. 
So yeah, that was uh, Disney, who was a very, very, you know, incredibly cool guy, actually. Yeah, I'm glad you read that piece because um, it actually illustrates one of the things that struck me as I was reading this book, um, which is the appearance, um, again, uh, appearance, I mean, repeated appearance of this uh, fascination with the notion of transcendence. Um, uh That I think is something that recurs with increasing frequency in your work. Um, I'm thinking of it in the work of Tarkovsky, which you write about so well in Zona. I'm thinking about it in uh, reference to uh, D.H. Lawrence in Out of Sheer Rage. Um, and um, I'm, I'm thinking about it also in terms of, uh, of jazz, which you write about so eloquently. And it seems to be more and more of a preoccupation of yours. And in fact, one of the things that gives this book its special character, for me at least, is, is that, that there's a, a, a very... Um, there's almost a kind of unique combination of the humor that what you call the bantering style, which typifies many of your interactions with the various people on the, on the ship and contrasted with that, the immense seriousness and gravity. And I'm tempted to say almost spirituality of much of what the experience adds up to for you. And um, in that context, I wonder if you could say something about what seems to be the climax of the book, uh, or at least to me, which is the um, the promotion of um, Lieutenant Clinton oh, St- yeah. Stonewall III, well, uh, which is a very, very beautiful passage. Actually, yeah. it, it comes after something that you need to set up, which is the Steel Beach Party. Sure, but actually, let me say something else. It's it's just it's funny, this, isn't it? So Chris and I have known each other for this awful long time. And the nice thing about doing an event like this is that we can have the kind of conversation that we would never dream of having when we're at, uh, when, when, when we're just having dinner. Yeah, it's, and I think you're, it's really true what you say, Chris. I think that's a big, been a big thing in, in the writing of wanting to, uh, preserve those moments of transcendence or to, um, you know, to try to find what they, you know, what form they might take in a sort of post-religious age and you know um yeah i mean my god the tarkovsky i mean tarkovsky is so uh, about that um yeah so i really really appreciate your saying it and i i tell you also that this book ends with this kind of nice Mm. sort of thing of prayer really i mean a definition an idea of what prayer might be if you're a hundred percent certain that there's nothing to pray to so yeah that's absolutely right and the, I think one of the things then that in terms of the transcendent moments, well, something, sometimes it's, it's actually, it's, it's like actually, in a sense, it's the opposite of being transcended. It's actually these big experience, experiences can be when you're absolutely locked into the moment. So I remember when this guy with this incredible name, this African American whose name was, uh, what was it again? Uh, Clinton Stonewall III. Yeah, from Birmingham, Alabama. Um, you know, and when he said, you know, that's how he introduced himself, I thought, that's like a history book, that, <laughs> that explanation of who he is. And when he, so he got promoted and gave this, it was at the end of this incredible day when there'd been no flight operations. There'd just been a party on the beach for every, on the, sorry, on the, on the flight deck for everybody, which they call the steel beach. So that was a kind of amazing day. And there was Nora Tyson in her shorts and Brian Luther, Captain Brian Luther in his shorts as well. And, it's quite funny to see these very high-ranking old military people in their shorts. Um, you you describe this as one of the greatest days of your life. Yeah, it really was. It really what, was. Why? 
because there was a real sense of belonging, you know, which uh, I think is also an, um, you know, okay, it's a, uh, it's something that one craves and it's not a transcendent experience because again, it's a thing that you feel locked into. Now, in this case, I was probably, le- I belonged there less than anybody. But yeah, I mean, it really was wonderful. And then after that, this guy got this guy who told me this incredible story of how, why, of how he'd won a medal. I mean, a kind of unbelievable story, actually. And it was so fantastic. And then he said, you know, and I'm getting... And I said, you know, everyone else is in their T-shirts. Why are you sort of strutting around in your dressed uniform with all the medal ribbons? You know, he says, because I'm getting promoted later in the day. And because there were no flight ops, his promotion took place on the flight deck. And then at the end of it, he just gave this incredible speech, which was... It's actually too long to read, but it was just so amazing. And it it was both hilarious and... It was like Henry V at Agincourt as well. And then uh, at the end of it, you know, everyone kind of went up and sort of, you know, in that very American way, they all sort of thumped him on the shoulder. And I went up to him as well. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't look him in the eye as every, all his friends had done because I just had tears streaming down my face. It was so, it was just so fantastic. Yeah, so that was, that was it. And it was, I was so glad to have, to have witnessed that. I'm even gladder that I had my di- that I had this high quality dictaphone, <laughs> which meant that I could and I had the presence of mind to to press it right at the beginning of his speech. Otherwise, I would not have been able to uh, to capture it. So the speech is actually repeated is um, is taken down pretty much verbatim, I imagine. Yes, in one of the, it's the quite host- long. Yeah, I mean, I I edited it to make mm. it look better on mm. the page uh, than it would. But yeah, another sort of hostile review of the book said, yeah, the only, you know, the best bit in the book is the bit that, you know, the only good bit in the book is the bit that he just cribs from uh, uh, Stonewall, who I, I think I've turned into some sort of the poster boy of the, of the American Navy, and I've not heard from him, ungrateful little shit. <laughs> <laughs> he comes out of it so well. Yeah, okay, I am, I'm very conscious that it's almost 10 to 8, mm. and um, so it would be good to have some questions. Because if anybody... we know you want to get home for the football. Exactly. So we're, we're going to wrap this up very smartly at 8 o'clock, but if anybody has questions... Um, so, gentleman in the front row. Hi. Um, you mentioned earlier about Dust Boot, the movie. Um, yeah. With this project, do you think about a submarine at all? Constantly, in the sense that, I mean, the aircraft carrier, which is huge, massive, is, uh, as I joke in the book, it's as crowded as a Bombay slum. So I thought about a sub, and also, you know, I was constantly banging my head. Uh, so I was constantly thinking of a submarine and thinking, thank God I'm not on a, on a submarine, uh, where it's, you know, unbelievably cramped. And also, I mean, I've just got no desire to be on a submarine. I mean, they just, you know, they, it just seems like an awful place to be. I mean, you know, you don't get any view of anything. Yeah. I was just wondering about the relationship to visual editions in the book and how much you worked with them or whether you're working more with Alan de Botton and he was working then with them, etc. Yeah, so, so the, the deal is, I should have said at the beginning, this is part of a, there, was a, there were six writers who went to different institutions so we all went to different places to write books. And then at this point, only th- for various complications, only three got written. So they're the people who are going to publish the books. I should also have said that each of the writers is accompanied by a magnum photographer. I was accompanied by Chris Steele Perkins, who was somewhat pissed off when he got a proof of the book to find out that he'd been referred to throughout only and always as the snapper. Some people are really touchy, aren't they? Um, <laughs> um, 
So then, you know, and as as many people will know, I'm very, very interested in photography. I've written a whole book about photography. I'm really conscious of the precedent of John Berger and Jean Moore with their, you know, collaborations. And then when it came to it, uh, I found I had sort of zero interest in getting involved in the design of the book. So the designer was in touch with me and said, you know, do you want to, what do you think about the edits, the edit of the the pictures? And I said, oh, I just leave it to you and Chris. Um, and I just didn't, just wasn't that, that bothered about it at all. The only thing I did want to do, uh, Chris had left the aircraft carrier before the Steel Beach Party and before Stonewall's promotion. And I took a rather nice photograph of Stonewall. And in an ill-advised moment, I said to Chris, would it be, o Chris Steele Perkins, not this Chris, would it be okay if, could we use, you know, could we use one of my pictures? He was even less delighted by that than he was at being referred to as the snapper, uh, which is understandable, because if he'd said, you know, is it okay if I put a paragraph of mine in? I wouldn't have gone along with that. So I think actually, in terms of some of the incredible things they've done, you know, like the uh, Saffron Foa book, this is quite a modest visually modest thing straightforward thing for them to do i should say the pictures are amazing the, the pictures are amazing but they they stand at some distance from the text that was something that i did uh, i was familiar with from berger and moore you yeah. know berger saying that what you want to avoid in a word and picture book is tautology mm. yeah mm. there are in fact two very different editions of this book as oh, well that, that's right so the, the oh i should have said this so the the brief was to write a book of thirty-five thousand words and I ended up writing 70,000 words, intending to cut them down. And then I found I'd become incredibly attached to those 70,000. So this will be longer than any other book in the series. And then because of that, and because of the particular time that I wrote my book, I mean, it's published in America in a different format with fewer fewer pictures, much more of a straightforward word book, as opposed to this, uh, this, rather, this rather lavish thing with, with, with more pictures. Uh, I'm curious about the setup. How, what happened? How did the US Navy react to this crazy British author being so excited about coming on one of their aircraft carriers? Do you know, oh. do you know much about that? Was it, was it yeah. a long process? I can give you a great answer to this because um, when I was here a month ago for the very first event for the book, I did this event with Alan de Botton. And I was able to ask him, I said, it was, it was incredible, you know, given that I'm in America now on a U.S. visa, and I know what a head fuck it was to get that visa and how much paperwork there, there was. I said to Alan, it was just incredible that they took such a... It was so easy getting me on the boat. And he said, ah, oh, it's actually the most difficult thing he's done in his life. <laughs> so there was a load of paperwork and security checks. And apparently one day this very high-ranking sort of public affairs uh, person called him and said, look... You know the way Americans say look like that in a way that doesn't sound rude. If I was to say look to you, it would sound kind of brusque. Anyway, look. She, uh, she said, I've discovered there are two Jeff Dyers. You probably know that there are two. She said, there's the one who seems to write these drug-addled these drug -addled novels. And there's another one who is a properly respectable financial t journalist for the Financial Times, who was the, I think back then he was the Beijing bureau chief. And she said, please tell me it's the second one, not the first. And de Botton, with his training in philosophy, was, when his knowledge of the difference between a truth and a falsehood, was able to string her along to the point that they thought they were getting the other one. Um, yeah, so behind the scenes, it was incredibly complicated. All sorts of security checks 
uh, were going on. But the truth is, actually, you know, I'm not. There's nothing in my. There's nothing in my past, apart from getting rest arrested for going on the rampage in Cheltenham when I was 17. There's nothing. Yeah, there's no reason why they shouldn't uh, have let me on. And then, of course, when I got on the on the ship, they were incredibly, you know, incredibly, uh, incredibly welcoming and you know, unbelievably nice. Yeah. I was wondering if you were ever tempted to, well, f- take a more fictional route to kind of fictionalize the narrative somewhat more. Oh. I, I mean, similar to the speculative territory you ended up in with Jeff in Venice or even the footnotes in Zona, for instance. Yeah. Do you know, uh, in this case, no. There's just one chapter which is written in the third person, which I think is the, the chapter that I had the most fun with when... Um, yeah, it's just, it's really it's a very fun chapter. But generally, uh, I felt that the stuff was so interesting. It didn't it didn't need any uh, it didn't need much doing to it really. And perhaps you know even I can see even that there, there is scope that the book could have been a, a more interesting book if there hadn't been any of me doing all my digressions and whining because the the content was so inherently interesting and. Just to link that up with my general sort of position, if you like, on these things, you know, as I re- read less and less literary fiction, you know, nearly always when I read a novel that's got s- set in some historical circumstance, you know, and I always think, oh, you know, I'll just read the, I'll just read the, the raw, the history book and I won't bother with all the, the fictional stuff, you know, so, uh, uh that's why it's, it's, it's really quite, quite straightforward. Whereas my other books have been formally quite innovative. There's nothing formally innovative about this. Any other questions? Yeah. What brand of dictaphone are you currently using? Oh, very. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't remember, but it's probably already quite obsolete. It was because, I mean, this is the thing about it. The, the carrier, as I talk about it, it was unbelievably noisy. I mean, it was just so, it was just so, it was incredibly noisy all the time. And then regularly, you know, when you've got the planes crashing down on the deck and taking off, and it's incredible that the dictaphone was, you can still hear what people are saying. It was really, it's really, um, and, but also it, the, listening to the tapes is a reminder to me of just how noisy it was. Um, because there's just this racket all the time. Yeah. I picked it up at Heathrow on the way to Bahrain to fly onto the carrier, just as a sort of afterthought, actually thinking, Oh, that might be useful. And, you know, if I hadn't done that, I don't know. I mean, I probably couldn't have written the book. Yeah, but thank you for that. Mm. Uh, yeah, I wish I was. Uh, I, I could get one of those endor- you know endorsement contracts. <laughs> Jeff Dyer uses exclusively Nokia dictaphone, whatever. Any remaining questions? There's one there. Um, I was just wondering if um, it was discussed with the crew the irony of the name of the air carrier and the continuation of the war and how they might have felt about it. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. My word. Um, well, you know, the the truth is that there. It took me a while to realize two things about the ship that should have been obvious. The basic mindset of the crew is is pretty right wing, really, and it's incredibly it's pretty evangelical Christian. So they were, you know, they're uh, they're a hundred percent committed to the mission, and they would be actually pretty much irrespective of what that of what that mission would be um and certainly i mean nobody was nobody was saying you know oh god you know what a what a mistake that was to 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 invade iraq i mean there was uh you know there was there there was predictably enough 
none of that. Uh, and there was just this incredible belief in, uh, in uh, the, the mission of the United States and feeling that this thing they were doing was an important part of that. And this was something I wish I'd got into more. And I sort of mentioned it a few times in the book, but it's funny when you're on this aircraft carrier, you're, you know, we know these things cost billions to build, of course, you know. Uh, uh, but then when you see the planes taking off and you think of just the day-to-day running costs, you know, you think of the opportunity cost of this thing in terms of the strain on the economy and all, it's so enormous. It was difficult for me not to see it as a, a considerable not exactly a waste of resources, but a use of resources that really could have been be- better used uh, elsewhere. Yeah, there are a couple of telling um, points uh, that you that you make almost um, in in passing. You say, you say at one point, "How would we have felt if the um, Iranians, as you put it, Iranians had a carrier twenty eight miles off the shore of Maine, of, off Maine or Cornwall?" Yeah, that's right, because we were just off the off the uh, off the coast coast of Iran. Yeah, so. Um, Yeah, and it seemed that our being there was a the carrier being there was a sort of kind of provocation provocation in in some ways. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. If anybody has one more question, yes. Uh, Was that question? What did the U.S. Navy think of the book? Do you know? uh, I heard from Nora Tyson, who was uh, really she she really liked it. My great friend, who I spent all this time with on the the boat, uh, Paul Newell, really liked it. There was there's another review on Amazon actually where, where um, it it really surprised me. It's one of these the um, the kind of most no we'd always have lunch with these these group of sort of graduates from the reactor room. They were I guess physicists of, of some kind, and he's and they really liked me. I mean I we just got on so well. And then there's this and there's a bit there's a kind of jokey bit because there's, there's these women on the the, the ship and you know it's, I just wasn't sort of. Anyway, we're about to fly off the ship, and one of these women that we've been having lunch with every day, suddenly she was dressed really, we're about to fly off on a helicopter, and she was wearing civilian clothes, and her hair was down, and I kind of noticed this, and wrote about it in the book. Anyway, he says, you know, he says, you know, it's actually a bit creepy, this middle-aged guy sort of letching up. Anyway, so yeah, it's, uh, think about these Navy people, people, they're so nice to your face, and then... When they get on Amazon, they're just, yeah, you know. So uh, on the one hand, you've got the guy say, you know, that guy read the thing from earlier. And then you've got this other guy saying, I, I'm creepy. So um, uh, I, I'd i be very surprised if people, if, I mean, they they couldn't have come out of it looking looking much, much better, I don't think. No, in many ways, it's it's, it's a love letter to the US military. I mean, it is, yeah, it I is, mean, in, of a kind that I would never, ever have imagined 20 years ago, imagined yeah. you writing and also i should say that it's a a, almost a point of principle for me with writing that you know it seems to me it's important that nobody in any book of mine comes out looking worse than the author um so that's the other thing in some of these things where people are just saying what a dick i am you know it's like do you really think i'm not aware that i'm making myself look a dick anyway in that sort of (laughs) that pregnant thought And actually, if we if we if we'd had longer, I would love to talk to you about the elaboration of the persona that uh, that comes in uh, in very very kind of full fledged form in this book more than any other I think that you've written. But that we'll have to leave for another time. Thank you very much, everybody, for coming. It's uh, great to see so many people here. Thank you indeed. Again, many thanks to the London Review Shop, and above all, thank you to Jeff Dyer. Yeah, but thank you as well, Chris. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. 
For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.